Take those Bibles of yours and turn to Acts chapter 7. That's where we're going to be hanging out today. Acts chapter 7. Just to recap, the church, Jesus, Jesus has ascended into heaven and he's left the church, the, the disciples behind to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth is what he's told them. The Holy Spirit has come into the lives of the early church and the, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, the church has even grown a little bit in structure uh, so, that the, so that the apostles can devi- devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. They've developed this deacon, the servant ministry to take care of the daily distribution of the food. And uh, now Stephen is out there. He's been doing signs and wonders and telling of the good news, being a witness for Jesus, and now facing persecution from the religious establishment, the Jewish folks. And Peter is about to give a defense in the form of one of the longest speeches in the New Testament. And uh, we're going to be getting into that today. If I had to... If, if, if I had to make an assessment, I think that what God is doing here very, very early in the church is giving the church a lesson on pride and helping us to understand that this is not about us. Stephen is a man that's described as a very gifted man, gifted in, uh, in uh, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace. Uh, he's built a reputation of that. That doesn't happen overnight. You build a reputation over time. And uh, he's out there working signs and wonders, and uh, he's going to be, next week, we're going to find out that he's going to be killed. This, is, this ministry that they're doing, it's not about a particular person or a particular person that's very gifted. It is about Jesus, and Stephen seems to get that. But God is going to deal with, with these kinds of things very early in the church because of what we're going to talk about today as Stephen gives a historical record of the things that have happened in the past. But just by way of mental exercise, before we get into the text, let's, let's talk about what it means just for a moment. This is, this is not me trying to blend my Christianity with my, with my Americanism, but, but, or my American uh, citizenship. But just as a thought experiment, I want to think about something. You know, we're coming up on Memorial Day and Fourth of July and all these things that are very patriotic, patriotic in the life of America. And I just want to just want to put a thought in your head as we, as we get ready to approach this text. There's a lot of folks out there that say that they're proud to be an American. And that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But, but let, me just chat, let me just push back on this just a little bit. Do we understand, do you fully understand the character that it required to found this country? I mean, the American founding fathers, and many people, men and women, they set themselves to the task of going up against the greatest military superpower on the face of this planet in the name of freedom. And they pledged everything. I mean, Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. And I just wonder sometimes when I say things like, I'm proud to be an American, am I cultivating the type of character in my own life so that when I, when I was asked to, to make sacrifice for this country, to keep, to preserve the freedoms that we have for future generations, where would I fold? Would I fold under minor inconvenience? 
Would I fold when they take away the, tax, the church's tax-free status? Or would I go all the way and pledge everything? I say all that as a thought experiment for what we're gonna, about to go through in this text, okay? In other words, it, it's one thing to say I'm proud to be an American in a very passive kind of casual way or to be the type of American that cultivates the character necessary to keep the freedoms that we have, to be the type of person that will stand up in the face of authority, corrupted authority, and say, thus far, no further. Let's get into the text and, and see if that, this will make any sense to what I'm saying as we move through. The big question we're going to wrestle with today is what is the key lesson that we can take away from Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin? Stephen... Part of this newly minted Christian faith, or the way, or whatever they called it back then, Stephen, a follower of Jesus Christ, just freshly minted a deacon, is now standing before the greatest religious authority in Israel, which is a combination of Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. They have the authority there, and he's going to give a defense. Now, I thought about this for a while, because some people point to Stephen as a type of Christ, and I thought... Well, when Jesus was on trial for very similar charges, by the way, blasphemy, uh, making claims that he could, you know, that making claims that if you tear down the temple, he'll rebuild it in three days, or they, they actually alleged that he was saying that he would tear down the temple. But when Jesus faced those charges, Jesus was pretty silent, right? And Stephen is going to give one of the longest speeches in the New Testament. What's the difference? Uh, this is what I came up with, that Stephen, that Jesus was the perfect spotless lamb of God and did not need to make a defense. Everything that they were charging him with was not true, and the trumped-up charges that they came up with were all fabrications and lies. And so Jesus made no, made no defense. Stephen, however, Stephen is a man like you and me. He's just a fallen human being. He's not Jesus. And so the defense that he's going to give is going to point like an arrow to Jesus and direct the attention of the entire Sanhedrin to God and his work through Christ. Uh, I'm a big fan. Back in my college days, the big Christian artist on the scene was Rich Mullins, and um, I'm a fan of his music. And uh, in one of the last photo shoots that I think he ever did before he died in a car crash, he was up on top of this hill, I think in Europe, Ireland or somewhere like that. He's up on top of this big hill, and the photographer yelled up to him and said, hey, Rich, strike a pose. I'm going to take your picture. And this was the pose that he allegedly struck. And then once they developed the film back in those days and took a look, the, uh, the photographer said, Rich, it looks like you're an arrow pointed to God. That's what Stephen is acting as in this text. Stephen is going to go back into the history of the Jewish faith and call to their attention certain episodes from the past that all point to Christ. So let's get into the text. First, the first episode that he's going to point them to is Abraham. Abraham. Let's look at uh, Acts chapter 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? So he's, they've, alle they've alleged against him blasphemy. They've alleged against him that he's denigrating the temple, denigrating the Mosaic law, denigrating the customs. Like he wants to get rid of all this stuff. That's what they're accusing him of. And so the high priest says, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, remember he's one of them. He's a 
He's a Jewish man. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Now, why does Stephen bring up Abraham? Why, why go back all the way to the beginning, the foundation of the Jewish religion? Well, I think he's trying to let everyone know that, that the thing that matters most, the thing that is key to our relationship with God is faith. That's it. That's what Abraham had, and that was the germ, that was the seed that, that brought forth this whole thing that is today in Stephen's day called Judaism, or the Jewish faith, the religious system that they enjoyed. It was all, if you trace it all the way back to its initial root heritage, it started with a man who had faith in God. He had knowledge of God, God had revealed himself to him, not by a Bible, but by just speaking to him. He had knowledge of God, he understood that God was who he said he was, and he trusted him. He put the weight of his life on what God had said by moving to a land that wasn't his own, leaving behind his family, and accepting and acting in accordance with the promise of God. Now, Abraham is sometimes referred to as a type of Christ, and here's one similarity, is that he left his home and his family, and of course, Jesus came down, descended from the presence of the Father onto this earth, to um, minister to us. But back to Abraham, God made a promise to him. He promised him, if you go back to Genesis 12, you can read all about it. God promised Abraham a land, the land of Canaan, which will later be called Israel. He promised him a land, though in his lifetime he would not possess that land. He promised him a seed, that is, a child, descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky, though he was old in age, and his wife was not able to bear children. And he promised him that in him, uh, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Well, what does that mean? Well, the land means Canaan. And of course, Stephen mentions in his speech that eventually, the descendants of Abraham did come to possess that land. And in the seed, he's talking that, uh, that Abraham, though Sarah was barren and, and that and though they had no children or were up there in age, that Sarah did have a child, Isaac, the child of promise. And that child eventually led, grew into and, and became what is the nation of Israel. And we know that later the nation of Israel produced the child 
that was promised way back in Genesis chapter 3. That child would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth because in Jesus Christ, all who come to him in faith will receive the forgiveness of sin. So God made Abraham promises. But imagine being Abraham. This land is not yours. You have no children yet. And what does it even mean that in me all the nations of the earth will be blessed? What does that mean? And yet, when God gave him this covenant, when he made this promise and told him that he was to circumcise the males, he did it. He performed what today is considered to be a minor surgery on Isaac, presumably himself, uh, and the males that would be part of that line were circumcised. Now, what does that mean? Is that a big thing? Is that a, people, scholars have strained for years to figure out the, 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 uh, the exact significance of, of that exact act. But at its core, at its root, if you boil it down to the bare minimum, Abraham believed God and acted on what he said to do. So let's just freeze that in our minds because we're going to need that later on in this message. Keeping in mind that at this time, there, were no, there was no formal religious system. There's no temple. There's no Old Testament law. There's no priests. There's no ephod. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no laver. There's no candlesticks. There's no altar. There is no formal religious system. There's not a city that's called the capital where the religious system is. There's simply what God has said and then the humble act of obedience of one man. The Bible in Genesis 15 says this, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Why is, why is Stephen, Stephen including this in his argument? He's going back all the way to the beginning and saying, guys, from the beginning, Sanhedrin, from the beginning, this has always been about faith. What God has said, we do. It's always been about that. Now Stephen's going to turn and he's going to give two examples that the Jewish people misunderstood over time. The first one is going to be Joseph. Pick it up in verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, okay, so this is the sons of Jacob were jealous of Joseph. You remember the story about the, the um, coat of many colors? You can read this about this in Genesis chapter 37 to 50. It's a wonderful story of God's sovereignty and uh, what God does uh, and how he can use evil for good. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And rescued him out of, his, of, of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now you remember, you got to go back and you got to read, right? Or you got to recall the story. Joseph was put into prison because he, Potiphar's wife made a sexual allegation against him that wasn't true, but she made an allegation against him. She got him landed in prison. 
while he was in prison, he interpreted some dreams for some, some of the king's men who were there temporarily. And then they forgot about him. The, the man, the, the man that, uh, that heard that proper, accurate interpretation of the dream forgot about him until the king had some dreams that no one could interpret. And then he remembered, because it was in his best interest to do so, and they went and brought Joseph. Joseph interpreted the dream, interpreted it accurately, told about a famine that's coming. And so Pharaoh elevated him to the command of e Egypt. And for those years of plenty, he stored away, stockpiled food. And when the years of famine came, he oversaw the distribution of food. Kind of like Stephen. Stephen was in charge of distributing food, right? So, now, there came a famine throughout all Canaan, verse 11. Throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob and his Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Why, why does Stephen bring up Joseph in this speech? Remember, he's building a case, he's making a, a defense, and so he's saying, listen, We've lived through this before. Joseph was a rejected rescuer, rejected by his own family because of jealousy, and later was used by God. He was rejected by his own family, and then was used by God to provide rescue for the house of Jacob, which would later be called Israel. God used Joseph to rescue the very family that rejected him, and in doing so, God was keeping the promise that he made to Abraham. you got to see that. God was keeping the promise that he made to the father of the Jewish faith. And the events in Joseph's life, Joseph's life point forward to the coming of Christ. Well, now in the largest segment of this speech, Stephen is going to turn to probably in the Jewish mind anyway, the greatest human being that ever lived, and that is Moses. He's going to spend a lot of time talking about Moses. Moses is another rejected rescuer. Verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. And this, at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended, an oppressed, he, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. 
but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was, wrong, the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, that's a long time, 40 years. When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. By the way, I think we would understand that it was God that appeared in that, in that bush, but at the, time of this, at the time that Stephen gave this speech, the Jewish people understood that they had some understanding, some writings were out there that it was angels had, that had done this. And so that, that was Stephen's understanding, and that's what he expressed. When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look, and there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us, and as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf. In those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as, as, is, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond the Babylon. Moses is described by Stephen, and it's true if you go back and read in, in the book of Exodus, Moses is a man who God raised up to, to, bring, to rescue Israel out of the slavery that they were experiencing in Egypt and on multiple occasions, they were 
he was rejected by Israel. We see the actions of Pharaoh in putting the Israelites in in slavery. We see the actions of Moses' fellow countrymen in rejecting him both before he led them out of Egypt and after he led them out of Egypt. And yet, God, faithful to his promise to Abraham, God provided rescue anyway. God's mighty hand, his outstretched arm, could not be thwarted by the plans of sinful men. What Stephen really brings us to in this section on Moses, he brings to the conclusion is that the people were really rejecting God. They weren't listening to the voice of Moses who was, had proven through his signs and wonders that God allowed him to, to, to perform, had proven that he was God's man. They rejected God. The book of Amos, which is where this quote is from in this, uh, in this passage, the end of the quote, or the quote at the end of this section, is from Amos. And in the book of Amos, God is rejecting Israel for her sin and idolatry and speaks of them being put into exile. Stephen kind of conflates the, the defeat of the northern kingdom. You know, Israel later on under King Solomon, after King Solomon had split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was defeated by Assyria, and then later the southern kingdom was taken into exile by Babylon. Stephen just mashes it together and says, I'll take you into exile beyond Babylon to kind of put all those events into one, one blob. What is Stephen saying here? Mentioning Joseph, mentioning Moses. Here's what he's saying. You guys have a history. You have a history of rejecting the one that God sends to bring rescue. He's, he's calling this to their attention. And then he's going to put one more nail in the coffin before he lowers the boom. He's going to talk about the tabernacle and how they had confused the worship of God for the form of worship. Look what he says. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness. What's he talking about? He's talking about the tabernacle. That thing that in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, the Israelites were commanded to construct. It contained a place, uh, it contained a box called the Ark of the Covenant to put uh, the, the stone tablets that, that contained the, uh, the law. It contained, uh, surrounding the Ark of the Covenant was the Holy of Holies, a very sacred place. Uh, surrounding that was a holy place. And then there was a, a court, an outer court, where uh, the, you could only come if you were clean. And you could only go into the holy place if you were a priest. And you could only go to the holy of holies one day a year if you were the high priest, after you had cleansed yourself in a certain way to make atonement for the sin. And this place was the worship center for God Almighty. God manifested his presence there with a pillar of cloud and smoke. You know, you know all this. And this tent of meeting was a good thing, designed to help them to worship God Almighty. Our fathers, verse 44, had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with, with Joshua, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to build a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon 
who built a house for him. Okay, so this when they, the tabernacle became turned into a permanent structure, not just a tent that was portable, but a permanent structure called the temple. But it was, but it was Solomon who built the, uh, a house for, for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands... Did not my hand make all, th- all these things? What's he saying here? He's pointing to the tent of meeting, and he's saying that David had a desire to transform that tent of meeting into a permanent structure, but that didn't happen. There's reasons why that didn't happen. I won't get into. Instead, Solomon made the temple, and even Solomon and the prophets understood that though they built this temple, they understood something that the Israelites in Stephen's day don't seem to understand. And that's pointed to in the very dedication of the temple back in 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon, as he was praying and dedicating the temple that was just built, said this. 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon, you see, understood that this temple was just a vessel. It was a tool designed to point them to the worship of God Almighty. And by the time we get to Stephen's day, by the time we, that Stephen gives this speech, what has happened on the earth, what has happened in the Jewish faith is that the form has become that is what, what is worshipped. The law is worshipped. The law that's designed to point us to to God, now they're worshipping the law and they're worshipping Moses. They're worshipping the temple. They're worshipping the customs. This is not what, that is not what God designed any of this to be. Stretching all the way back to Abraham, it was, it was then and is now about faith. In Romans 4.3, Paul reiterated what was said in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So let's go back. Let's go back, and just before Stephen lowers the boom on these guys, let's go back and let's just review. It's always been about faith. See, Abraham, you guys have rejected a God-given deliverer before in the person of Joseph, And in the person of Moses, you've rejected God's man before. You've even transferred over and and you've turned the temple and our customs and whatever, you've turned that into something that it was never designed to be. Even the person that built the temple, Solomon, understood that this was designed to point us to God, not be our God. And so Stephen now is going to give them their diagnosis. You are unteachable. Look at what he says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. 
I mean, if you were a member of the Sanhedrin, what must be going through your head right now? This man has just taken you all the way back to the founder of the Jewish faith and made a very consistent argument, helping, helping you to see that none of these things, that, that this Jesus that we murdered, this man might very well have been yet another or the ultimate deliverer that we rejected. Was their response one of humbly submitting to God? Well, we're going to see next Sunday, not at all. Quite the opposite. It was to repeat the same mistake they made with Jesus by murdering him. They're going to repeat the same mistake again. You are unteachable. They're stiff-necked. They're unyielding. They're stubborn, refusing to change. And then he says, then he says something, and I, and I wonder what you make of it. If you're anything like me, I'm wondering. It took me a while to figure out what I was making of it. What does it mean to be uncircumcised in heart and in ears? I mean, I don't want to do an anatomy lesson here today, but circumcision doesn't really have anything to do with hearts and ears. What I'm saying is, what does he, what does he mean by that? Well, again, go back to what I said earlier. Circumcision, if it, if it, whatever it symbolized, it, and its core was this. God, God made Abraham promises, and he said, do this as a sign of the covenant. Circumcise your males. And Abraham responded in humble obedience, and he did it. So what does it mean to be uncircumcised in heart? It means your heart is unyielding. You are only going to believe what you want to believe. What does it mean to have uncircumcised ears? It means ears that are unyielding, meaning you're only going to hear that which you want to hear. You ever talk to somebody like this? It's really hard. You try to reason with them. You try to speak the truth. You try to take them through the scriptures, and they just say, yeah, I hear everything that you're saying, but you're wrong. What? I want to remind you once again that it has been and always is about faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What does this, what does this all mean? Let me, let me button this up here. The answer to the big question today, what's the key lesson that we can take away? I'm going to say it and then I'm going to explain it. The key lesson of Stephen's speech, I believe, is that it doesn't matter how you identify what matters is your faith in God that drives humble obedience to his word. What do I mean by that? Earlier, in the, earlier at the very beginning, I said, you know, it's one thing to say I'm proud to be an American, I'm an American, whatever. But it's another thing to develop the character that it took for us to become Americans, right? To, to, to fight for freedom, even though our founding fathers were fighting against, presumably, the greatest superpower militarily, on the face of planet Earth, they fought and they, they were victorious. I would argue it had something to do with God's providence. But let me, let, me, let me ask you this question by way of just applying this. It's one thing to say, I am a Christian. I go to church on Sunday. I have an ESV Bible. Not one of those New Living Translations. I'm teasing. I like the New Living Translation. I'm just teasing. I just picked that out of the clear blue sky. The, the church where I go to, the pastor wears a suit and tie when he preaches. And, and he preaches from a pulpit. 
we sing the old hymns of the faith at our church. You see where I'm getting at with this? That is not what this is about. It doesn't matter how you identify. It matters in your response to God's word, in your daily humble obedience to him. I want you to think, just for a moment with me, how ugly and corrupt the Sanhedrin had become by Stephen's day. We studied last week that they were even willing to subvert their very own commandments, even the Ten Commandments, which those are the main ones, let's admit, right? They were willing to bear false witness against Stephen to get rid of him because they viewed him as an attack on their forms of worship, that they were convinced in their minds, this is the right way to do it. In other words, they were willing to abandon completely obedience to God to get what they wanted. And it had become corrupt and ugly, and it was capable, that system was capable of murder. Murder of Jesus, and what we're going to see next week, murder of Stephen. Folks, I beg you, do not allow yourselves to get trapped and caught up in the forms of what we do here. Instead, focus your time and attention on loving God with everything that you've got. And what that looks like is humble obedience to his word. My sister, years ago when she was a teenager, she converted to Roman Catholicism. I was talking to her on the phone today about something completely unrelated. Uh, some family matter that we were working through. And uh, everything's fine. Our family's great. It was not contentious at all. So my sister was telling me about her trials and travails as a Roman Catholic these days. They had an older priest in their parish for a long time that nobody liked. And when I say nobody liked him, they used to trick him by putting uh, extra crackers in the communion thing. And, and then the men of the church would drink all the wine. And I, if you know anything about Roman Catholicism, you can't waste any of the host. So they, got, they made the priest stand up there and eat cracker after cracker with no wine to wash it down. That's how much they didn't like the guy. So they got, they got a new priest. He retired. What, who, what priest wouldn't retire having that church, right? He retired, and they got a new priest, a young priest. And listen, I don't have any love to the, you know, I think there's a lot of problems with Catholic, Catholic religion, but that's for a different day. They got a new priest, a younger priest. And things are going really well. The church is, is filling up again. My sister tells me she's a, she, she, she does something, and she's got some official title. Anyway, uh, the church is filling up again with young families with children, and it's good to see, and everybody's excited about it and all this kind of stuff, except there's a contingent. There's a contingent of people in that church that are writing letter after letter, scathing letters to the bishop. You've got to get this guy out of here. You've got to get this guy out of here. You've got to get this guy out of here. So I asked my sister, why? What's their big complaint? She said, he doesn't sing, he doesn't lead the church in the old songs. He's brought in some new songs. And I said, Okay, so I, I, I'm going to be objective here. I'm going to say, well, uh, listen, is he bringing in, the, are the new songs that he's bringing in, are they theologically poor? Are they, don't, they don't talk about God at all. Maybe they're just, 
whatever. They're, they're empty songs. She said, no, they are very good songs, very deep, very biblical, um, pointing us to Jesus. But there's a contingent in the church that says you cannot be holy unless you sing the old songs. You see what happens? I mean, I, listen, I got no love for the Catholic faith. I'm just using that as an, 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 an illustration. I love my sister. One of the things I love about my sister is I can dialogue with her about our differences and it doesn't get ugly and we, we, we love each other. But you get my point, right? These Pharisees, these Sadducees, they had it all wrong. Stephen patiently goes back in time and gives them from Abraham to the present day, a makes a case and implores them to break, break up the stubbornness, the stiff-neckedness of their heart, you know, circumcise their heart, circumcise their ears. Their response is not good, as we will see next week. By way of application, here's some things to think about. In what areas of your life are you choosing your own way? This is a key question, right? Where are you choosing your own way? And even maybe reasoning in your mind that, well, that's okay because uh, other people at my church are doing it. Or nobody seems to get too excited about it. Um, what does God say? Right? Number two, what are the things that you are holding as sacred that are really designed to point to the sacred one? Right? Let's not get all bound up in the forms. Let's instead focus our attention on the one that the forms are supposed to point us to. And then finally, I didn't put this on, I didn't put, you have to write this one in. It's not in the notes. I would, I would encourage each one of us, including myself, to, to develop the character of Stephen. It's one thing to say I'm a Christian, and it's another thing to say I'm going to be the type of guy, the type of person who learns the word, who lives out the word. Who, Stephen built a reputation, the text tells us, that he was a man that was known to be full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, right? That doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. He built a reputation of being that. That's how he's described. To learn the word, to live the word, to teach the word, and to be willing to put everything on the line. He pushed all of his, everything that he was, he pushed it into the middle and said, I'm going to bear witness of Jesus Christ to this Sanhedrin right now, and I don't care what happens. I, I would argue that, that that takes some character development on our part. Because I fear that for many of us, when we're pushed back on just a little bit by someone who doesn't even hold a position of authority anywhere, but they say, you're wrong, God wouldn't do that, you're wrong, you have a, you have a misunderstanding that we just say, eh, you may be right, when we know the truth. So let's proclaim it. Father, we don't want to be uh, people who claim to be Christians but don't have any kind of character or any kind of obedience to your word. We don't want to be Christians who go down the road of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and become so fixated and fascinated on the forms of worship that we lose sight of the one that we're supposed to be worshiping. And Father, we certainly don't want our hearts to get so decayed and decrepit so stiff-necked and unyielding that we would resort to lying and murder to keep our way. 
Father, the only one that can to do that work in our lives is you. So convict us of the areas that we need convicting. And then, Father, grant us, as we access your word, illumination to know how to walk in a new way. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the freedom that that gives us, freedom from sin, freedom to walk in a new way, knowing that our hope that is now by faith will someday be something that we see and experience with you in glory. Because of Jesus, amen.